I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Privyet and welcome to the history of Russia. This is episode 26, The End of Empires. Thanks for listening in. And just by way of an explanation, and just in case you didn't know, Privyet is Russian for hi, and Zdrasvutya, which I've used for the last couple of episodes, is a more formal hello. So where were we? Well, last time out, we covered a complete smorgasbord of historical events across Eastern Europe and Western Asia, between the years 1390 and 1425, which encompassed dynastic union in Poland and Lithuania, war between Toktomysh and Tamerlane, Moscow's bullying of Novgorod, alliances, revenge, death, Vasily I's time in charge, and Sophia's many pregnancies. This week, I'm going to narrow down the scope and we'll just be concentrating on three main subjects or themes during a period roughly between 1425 and 1480. And those are the slow terminal decline and fragmentation of the Golden Horde, the fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks, and then the life and times of Vasily II of Moscow, which will include a bitter civil war, three blindings, yes, blindings, and the beginning of his son Ivan III's reign, which will see further trouble for the Republic of Novgorod and another confrontation with the Mongols. There are no messages, marketing spiel or admin stuff this week, so let's get straight to it. And we'll start with the Mongols. The writing had been on the wall for the Golden Horde for several decades, initially with the losses to Dmitry Donskoy's armies at the battles of the Vojja River and Kulikovo, and then with the devastation of the Toktomish-Tamerlane War and the latter's subsequent invasion 
and destruction of its key cities. Now following each of those events, Mongol armies had gone back on the offensive and both times had managed to bring Moscow back into their overlordship. However, neither of these on-the-surface successes had managed to do anything other than paper over the cracks, and as the years went on, it was clear to Moscow and Lithuania, and probably the Mongols themselves, that the glory days were over. And the main reason for this was simply that the quality of leadership just wasn't there anymore. The Khans had grown comfortable on the proceeds of roost taxes and trade revenues, and as most dynasties and empires eventually do, relax their grip. And the other main reason was the sheer number of senior princes and generals, many of whom thought that they were the right man for the top job, but who probably weren't and didn't realise or didn't care that the resultant long-term internal feuding would have a serious detrimental impact on the stability of the state. And this didn't just apply to the Golden Horde. The same malaise had also impacted the larger Mongol Empire. And so over a period of decades, the Golden Horde fragmented gradually into a number of smaller Turkic-speaking Khanates, which declined steadily in power, and by the 1460s, it was being referred to collectively as the Great Horde. So not golden anymore, but still important, even though confusingly, there was a separate Khanate of the same name. And just as a point of reference, these individual Khanates were the Khanate of Sibir, the Uzbek Khanate, the Nogai Horde, the Khanate of Kazan, and then you had the Crimean Khanate, the Kazim Khanate, the Kazakh Khanate, Astrakhan Khanate, and as mentioned previously, the Great Horde. So you're going to get the picture, that's about eight or nine separate Khanates. Okay, so let's leave the Horde to its imminent collapse and head down to the south to look at the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Empire, which had been going through a similar but lengthier demise. Now, as I've hinted over the past few episodes, Constantinople's own glory days were well in the past. The rot had started to set in in 1054 with the Great Schism, which split the Western and Orthodox churches. And then following the Battle of Manzika in 1071, the Byzantines had lost most of their Anatolian heartland. Then came the Fourth Crusade and the sack of Constantinople in 1204, and after that, the Black Death in 1349, both of which resulted in further losses of territory, population, influence and trade. And as with the decline of the Horde, there'd been a couple of periods of resurgence where the Byzantines seemed to be getting things back on track. But these were false dawns, and by, 14, by the 1450s, the empire was a shadow of its former self, consisting only of the city of Constantinople, which was surrounded by the Turks, plus a handful of islands and the Peloponnese Peninsula in modern-day Greece. Now, back in the 1430s, the desperate Byzantines, realising that the game was up, had turned to the West for help. But apart from a few pledges and promises of aid, militarily, the empire was left to deal with its inevitable fate on its own. In 1439, 
the empire tried one last desperate throw of the dice, and at the Council of Florence, Byzantine representatives of the Orthodox Church, along with Metropolitan Isidore from Moscow, agreed a deal with the papal envoys that saw the Eastern Church recognise the primacy of the Pope. But if the empire had thought that by agreeing to this, that Western forces would start to pour in, they were to be sadly disappointed. Again, no tangible help arrived, and in fact the agreement between the two churches caused a split of its own, as in the end, Moscow refused to support the deal. But anyway, more of that later. And so we reach May 1453, and the 21-year-old Mehmet II, or Mehmet the Conqueror, is at the gates of Constantinople, gazing at the ancient but hitherto impregnable double Theodosian walls, with a knowing smile playing on his lips. Or at least, polite to think he is, because he knows that he has the technology, i.e. gunpowder, to render the walls basically insignificant. Inside those same walls is the last Byzantine emperor, Constantine XI, and he's not smiling. He's done the best he can, shoring up the defences and trying everything possible at this late hour to get someone, anyone, to come to his aid. But he knows deep down that it's too late. Within the city there are between seven and 8,000 men, mostly Byzantines but with a small contingent of Venetians and Genoese. And they're matched against Mehmet's reportedly 80,000 strong besieging force. Gradually, day by day, the Turkish cannons are making more and more, more holes in the city's walls. In desperation, Constantine had sent messages pleading with Mehmet to come to some kind of arrangement that would spare the city and its remaining inhabitants, but Mehmet had replied as follows. Either I shall take the city, or the city will take me, dead or alive. If you will admit defeat and withdraw in peace, I shall give you the Peloponnese and other provinces for your brothers, and we shall be friends. If you persist in denying me peaceful entry into the city, I shall force my way in, and I shall slay you and all of your nobles, and I shall slaughter all the survivors, and allow my troops to plunder at will. The city is all I want, even if it is empty. And with that unambiguous statement, Constantine prepared for the worst. And so it began. On the morning of May the 29th, 1453, the final bombardment took place. And before long, Mehmet's forces were pouring into the gaps in the breached walls. And several hours later, the city was taken and Constantine was dead. Either killed in the fighting or by suicide or, most likely, captured and decapitated. And then began, began three days of looting and pillaging, after which any Christian or Jew that had remained alive was deemed to be safe and protected by the Sultan's command. Constant, Constantinople had now become Istanbul. The Hagia Sophia had now become a mosque. And later some historians would mark the loss of the city and therefore the empire as the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of the Renaissance in Europe, fuelled by the fact 
that a number of important Byzantine scholars with their texts had managed to make it out of Constantinople and across to Italy. Okay, we'll look at the impacts of the end of the Byzantine Empire and the soon-to-be end of the Mongol occupation upon Moscow later on in the episode. Because for now, we need to see what is happening in Muscovy at the beginning of Vasily II's reign. Because whilst all of this mayhem is going on, or soon to be going on elsewhere, the Rurikids were about to embark on some major infighting of their own. So the background to this was that when Dmitry Donskoy was in charge, he had produced a testament which stated that his eldest son Vasily, that's Vasily I, would succeed him. And then next in line would be Vasily's brother Yuri. Dmitry obviously thought that this was a sensible move, as at the time Vasily had no children. However, as we know, Vasily and Sophia went on to have numerous children. When Vasily died, his 10-year-old son Vasily II, and he was the only son to have survived, was proclaimed as the next Grand Prince. All normal and above board, except that Yuri thought otherwise, saw no reason as to why his father's testament should be ignored, and what's more, Vitautas, his grandfather on his mother's side, and still the Grand Duke of Lithuania, agreed with him. Yuri bided his time, and then he and Vitautas had a brainwave. They decided that Yuri would head out to Sarai, and get the Khan's agreement for him to take power in Moscow, even though the Golden Horde's backing by this stage in the game was really nothing more than the lightest of rubber stamps. But this really didn't matter, because Yuri did have the backing of one of the most powerful boyars in Moscow, and a man with a really tricky name to pronounce. But here goes Ivan Vesevolovsky. And so in 1433, and with Ivan and Vitautas' backing, backing, Yuri raised an army, marched upon Moscow, defeated the forces of the now 18-year-old Vasily II, and set himself up as the Grand Prince. So far, so good. But then Yuri made what turned out to, in retrospect to be a bit of a mistake, because rather than just killing Vasily or making him disappear within the safe confines of a monastery, Yuri sent his nephew to administer the town of Kolomna, which lay about 100 miles to the southeast of Moscow. So nice and out of the way, but close enough to keep an eye on what was going on. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As it turned out, Yuri didn't keep even half an eye on what started to occur in Kolomna. Just a note here, I really shouldn't be mentioning eyes as will soon be evident. Because Vasily was able to gather some useful supporters around him and start planning his return to his rightful place in Moscow. Now when Yuri eventually found out that Vasily was plotting against him, he panicked and he fled the capital, handing the city to Vasily on a plate. And the first thing that Vasily did upon his return was search out for that traitorous Ivan Vesevolovsky, sling him in prison, and then send a couple of men, and there's no nice way to say this, to gouge his eyes out. Meanwhile, in 1434, Yuri died, but his claim to the throne of Moscow now passed down to his sons, Vasily the Cross-Eyed, or the Squint, and Dmitri Shemyaka. And they raised an army and managed to defeat Vasily II, who fled east to seek refuge in what remained of the Golden Horde. Vasily the Cross-Eyed became the Grand Prince, but soon he and his brother Dmitri were quarrelling, and then Dmitri formed an alliance with Vasily II, and they managed to lure the Grand Prince into a fight where he was captured, and yes, as you've probably guessed, blinded. So now Vasily II is Grand Prince again, but in 1439 he had to flee Moscow when a force from the recently formed Kazan Khanate besieged the city. Six years later, Vasily, still in charge, managed to get himself captured by the Khanate and was only released when the Muscovite boyars had paid a huge ransom. But on return to Moscow, he was captured by his cousin Dmitri and, yeah, you can guess the rest. The now blind Vasily II was banished, but Dmitri found it difficult to rule as the majority of the boyars were now pro-Vasily and so he recalled his cousin to Moscow, but the tension remained and soon Vasily II's supporters moved against Dmitri, captured him and, ah, no, this time you're wrong, they poisoned him. So finally, after nearly 25 years of bitter civil war featuring repeated eye-gouging, banishments and recalls, the blind Vasily II emerged victorious and set about ruling Moscow as best he could. And he was helped in his endeavours by his boyars, his teenage son Ivan, and the newly independent and empowered Orthodox Church. So earlier on, we looked at how, before its collapse, Constantinople signed a deal with the Catholic Church recognising the primacy of the Pope. However, Moscow refused to support the deal, and Vasily had Moscow's representative, the Metropolitan Isidore, removed from his position and exiled from the city. The Metropolitanate then remained empty for the next seven years, until in 1448, Jonas, a Russian bishop, was installed by the Council of Russian Bishops in Moscow as the Metropolitan of Kiev and all Russia, with permanent residence in Moscow. But importantly, all this was done without the consent of Constantinople, and this signified the beginning 
of an effectively independent church structure in Muscovy. And so one of the main impacts of the end of the Byzantine Empire and the fragmentation of the Horde was that the Orthodox Church in Moscow became even stronger, with many now starting to view Moscow as a sort of third incarnation of Rome. And remember that, that due to the Mongols' toleration and support of different religions, it had been in a pretty good place anyway. The other impact, and this is mainly due to the demise of the Horde and their marginal ability to sway events during the recent civil war, was that whoever was the Grand Prince now only had to pay the faintest of lip service to the increasing number of separate Khanates. So now Moscow was effectively independent in both state and religion, and the number of key regional players had been reduced, so that now we're just left with Moscow, Poland-Lithuania and Novgorod, and the number was soon to be reduced even further. Now that the civil war was over, Vasily II could concentrate on the home front, and his first move was to begin the elimination of almost all of the small appanages in Muscovy, in an attempt to centralise the state and strengthen his sovereign authority. And with that on the go, he then started to further increase Moscow's territory and external influence, gaining Suzdal, the Vyatkalans, and some territory from Pskov. Vasily died in 1462, and having served his apprenticeship, the 22-year-old Ivan III wasted no time in getting on with the job at hand. Now at the top of his entry were number one, continuation of his father's policies concerning the centralised control of the state, and he set his sights on bringing the remaining appanages back under Grand Prince the ownership, i.e. his ownership. And then number two, the further expansion of Moscow's territory. And to accomplish this, he turned his gaze towards the northwest and the Republic of Novgorod. Now we heard in the last episode that the Republic was worried about Moscow. Well, these worries were still there, niggling away like worries can. And so the Vesh, or Council, made a decision to seek out the protection of Poland-Lithuania, and made overtures for a formal alliance. But the problem was that this gave Ivan the excuse he'd been waiting for. He formally wrote to Novgorod, declaring that the alliance was an act of religious apostasy. And here, he was using Moscow's new status as the foremost foremost orthodox entity. And then, with his army already assembled, his generals started to march northwards. Moscow and Novgorod fought twice in the summer of 1471, first at the Battle of the Shalon River and then on the northern Dvina, and the score was 2-0 to Moscow, and the Republic was forced to sue for peace, agreeing to abandon their overtures to Lithuania and to cede a considerable portion of their northern territories to Moscow, whilst paying a war indemnity of 15,500 rubles. Ivan personally visited Novgorod several times over the next five years, exercising his role as the now de facto ruler of the Republic and making sure that a number of the boyars who were known to have been in favour of the alliance were either punished or exiled. Then in 1478, 
after a further row between the pro and anti-Lithuanian factions, which saw those who were anti-Moscow make another attempt to gain support from Poland-Lithuania, Ivan decided that enough was enough, and personally led a force against the Novgorodians. And this time there was to be no mucking about. His forces completely surrounded the city, and with no sign of any support coming from the west, the Novgorodians, fearing the worst, if Ivan let his soldiers off the leash, decided to surrender. And then on the 15th of January 1478, in a document signed and sealed by our Bishop, Archbishop Feofil of Novgorod, the Republic ultimately recognised Ivan's direct, direct rule over the city, its vast hinterland, and of course, its lucrative trade network, ending many centuries of quasi-independence and proto-democracy. Now, whilst all of this had been going on, Khan Ahmed of the Great Horde sent a dispatch to Moscow demanding the customary tribute and taxes. But we're told that when the document arrived, arrived, Ivan took it, spat on it, ripped it up, threw the pieces of the, on the ground and stomped on them all, of which I suppose meant that he was going to pay. Or that he wasn't going to pay. In 1480, after several years of indecision and phony war, Ahmed raised an army and started to march towards Moscow. Now we're told that Ivan initially panicked, but when his brothers told him that if he didn't do something, they would, the Grand Prince assembled his own force and marched out to intercept the Khan. The two armies met on opposite banks of the Ugra River, to the south of Moscow. What happened next was in effect a standoff, or a massive game of chicken, with both sides hoping that the sheer size of their respective armies would frighten the opposition. And after several weeks of feints and skirmishes, Ahmed blinked first and retreated. And this so-called Battle of the Ugra River, although not recognised at the time, represented the last realistic threat from the Horde, and after 240 years, the occupation was finally over. So Moscow had vastly increased its territory, was now truly independent, the head of its own Orthodox Church. The Horde was gone, Byzantium was gone, Novgorod had been swallowed up, and all was quiet on the Polish-Lithuanian front. But Muscovy had been lucky in two major ways. Firstly, none of its neighbours had taken any advantage when the Muscovites had spent nearly 25 years wrapped up in a long, bitter civil war. And secondly, Poland-Lithuania had been strangely quiet when Moscow made its Novgorod power grab. And on either occasion, events could have turned out to be significantly different. Okay, we'll pause it there. Next time we'll be seeing if that luck continues during the remainder of Ivan III or Ivan the Great's long reign. Incidentally, the second longest reign of any Rus or Russian ruler. And we'll be taking a look at just what had been going on in Poland-Lithuania. So until then, keep yourself safe, look after yourself, and I'll see you all soon. <laughs>